In other words, start in the UK, get product market fit on this side of the Atlantic, and then Americanize it, but hopefully as a result of being pulled into the US, right? As opposed to saying, right, the US is the big market. I don't have any proof this is going to work, but I'm going to start spending money on it and moving people there, and we're going to make it work. That's tough. Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Daniel Glazer. Daniel is the founding partner of Wilson Sonsini's London office. He's an American technology lawyer and strategic business advisor. At the beginning, we're talking about today the difference between hiring a lawyer in the UK and hiring a lawyer in the US. I think in the US, business law and having lawyers attached to companies is a much more strategic decision in the early life of a business. There's more litigation in the United States and having a lawyer on board helps you professionally manage some of that risk. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but mostly what we're going to talk about today is US expansion. So Daniel and his team in the London office will work with about 250 European, mainly UK, but European startups and scale-ups looking to do business in the United States. So that might be M&A, uh, it might be moving your headquarters to the United States, it might be moving your legal entity to the US, it might be that you want to raise money in the US, that you want to do mergers and acquisitions out of the US or into the US. It might be that ultimately you want to do an IPO on one of the stock exchanges in North America. So great conversation talking with Daniel about what he knows. And in fact, I got introduced to Daniel. Somebody said to me, Daniel Glazer, he's the guy, nobody knows more about how to launch into the US as a European technology business than Daniel. So fantastic conversation. I really enjoy talking to him. I'm sure you'll enjoy our discussions. My name is Dan Glazer. I'm the London office managing partner at the Silicon Valley headquartered law firm, Wilson Sonsini. And I head up a team of uh, American and, uh, and dual qualified UK-US tech lawyers that work with UK and European startups and scale-ups through their US lifecycle, launch, scale, raise venture capital, and then exit through M&A or IPO in the United States. Okay. And how long has the firm been around? firm's been around since the early 1960s. Okay. Working with sort of uh, you know, garage stage startups, as it were, all the way up to public company and then, and then and, uh, well, to IPO and then beyond to public company. We started basically when the first venture funds were formed in Silicon Valley to invest in tech companies. And the firm was created to, uh, to work with those companies and, and their investors. And why the UK? Are you across Europe as well? We have an office in Brussels. 
okay. as, as, as well. But I, I would I would say in terms of uh, I'd say U.S. expansion and fundraising work that we're doing for uh, UK and European companies is primarily out of London, and 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 now it's uh, with the. Uh, Travel opening up again, it, it, it's good to have the opportunity to get back out to, uh, to other cities as well. Although, uh, certainly in the remote environment, it, it was easier than ever to, to meet companies, uh, to meet companies who, uh, whether they were just down the down the block on Old Street or whether they were in, uh, you know, Stockholm or, or Berlin, it was it was pretty much the, the, the same video screen, right? <laughs> yes. And so, are you sad? That you're going to be meeting people in person, or are you happy to be meeting people in person? Oh, it's, I, I think it's great. You know, it, it's uh, while while I absolutely you know enjoy you know the video calls. There's a, it's also very dynamic to get out and and see people. And uh, hey, I'm not going to lie. You know, I'm I'm an American in London. One of the great things about being here is just uh, you know get getting a you know hop, skip, and a jump, and suddenly you're in Amsterdam, or you're in Paris, you know, and you're in uh, you're in Berlin. You don't even have to cross the Atlantic. Right? It's great. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. And so. What types of firms, startups, do they have to have got up to a particular size? Or are you working with people or you're having conversations with people when they're still very early in there, you know, working out where they're going to sell it, how they're going to sell it? Are you are you that early on in the conversation with some people? Yeah, well, certainly in 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 the U.S. we we absolutely are right because we're we're sort of running a you know a, a domestic U.S. practice there. But I'll I'll focus on on what we're doing in London. And on London, I I would say that we are stage agnostic, but we are not sort of aspiration agnostic or not geography agnostic. In other words, when you, when you think about what our particular focus is, which is on working with with companies through that U.S. life cycle. That life cycle could be anything from, let's say, a company that gets accepted into Y Combinator, right, and and ends up, let's say, moving to the to the Bay Area to raise a seed round, right. That's pretty early in the life cycle. All the way up to it could be a company that's looking to to list Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange, or to take maybe a middle ground there, a company that's looking to raise a Series A and it's already gotten, let's say, it's an enterprise SaaS company. It's got two million ARR and a million is already coming from from the U.S. And, you know, the real growth of the business looks to be in the U.S. And they say, you know what, I want to see if I can raise my Series A from a U.S. VC, right? Anything along that spectrum, right, from the very early stage, we're, we're, we're going to go attack the U.S. early all the way up to the later stage. We're going to become a U.S. public company and everything in, in between. Okay. And what bits of that do you help people solve? Sure. You know, the way I sometimes describe it is the, the easiest way to talk about what we do is it, it's, I would, I would describe it as U.S. expansion and fundraising. Although I guess I should say, I should say as the ecosystem evolves here, U.S. expansion, fundraising, and, and exit, right? Exit through M&A or, or IPO. You know, the way that we, and, you know, and I would, I would say that this is the, the sort of the Silicon Valley model of, of engagement with, with companies is, is to not just provide, I guess, maybe what would be seen as traditional legal advice, but to be a business and, and strategic advisor as well, um, and, and maybe even a bit of a community connector, right? So when companies ask, well, I'm looking to, you know, I'm looking to launch in the US, you know, well, yeah, okay, so we could talk about specifically the, the technicalities of that, but let's talk about the strategy behind that, right? Like other companies that we've worked with and the, the timing in terms of, well, what was their, their traction in, in the US? And, you know, where did they go in, in the US in terms of operationally, where's the right place to go? And let, let's, let's think about, you know, do you have product market fit in the US and, and, and how, can we, how can we pressure test that? Because normally, if these were the things you were trying to overcome, calling a law firm is probably not 
where you'd start in the yellow pages? Ah, uh, yeah. So that's one of my favorite topics. So I got to tell you, I may sound like I'm 18, uh, but but I, <laughs> <laughs> but you know I've um, practiced in the U.S. for about 25 years before moving to the U.K. And I had never heard the phrase "instruct a lawyer" before I moved to the U.K. That in the U.S. the phrase is um, "take advice of counsel." Right. The sort of more traditional American, I would say maybe even Silicon Valley approach is to sort of help companies answer one question, right? How do you achieve your business goals while managing risk, right? In other words, it's combining what I would call traditional business and maybe traditional legal. Because in in the U.S., and I don't want to go down too much of this rabbit hole, but suffice it to say that the the reason for it tends to be tied to the greater litigation risk environment in the U.S., that... If, if you provide, let's say, legal advice in the U.S. in a vacuum without any consideration of the business realities, right, then all you'll be doing is pointing out risks. And in the U.S. in particular, there seems to be risks, risks everywhere because of the litigation environment, right? But you can't, on the other hand, just provide pure business advice without a consideration of the legal. Because of that lit- litigation environment in the U.S., if you only think about business without any consideration of the legal, the potential of getting blindsided by significant legal or re- regulatory problems is much greater, right, than I would, I would say, you know, certainly in, in most, most other countries. So everything in the U.S. ends up becoming a blend, everything in business, right, ends up becoming a blend of business and legal, right? Uh, and, which explains why people end up with general counsel. You know, they end up with lawyer on the board way quicker, if ever, than you would see in the UK. Yeah, well, it's very common in the US for venture-backed tech companies to have their their outside corporate counsel attend board meetings often from day one, right? Mm-hmm. That that the, the outside counsel becomes sort of a, a de facto, not an actual usually, but a de facto board observer, you know, helping, really digging in to the company's business, understanding what, what the company is looking to do, and contributing a fair a fair bit to, or at least participating in the discussions of, of, of where the business is going. And I think that, that that help comes in a couple different ways, right? Where if the board is thinking, well, here's the direction we want to take the business, it helps to have counsel be able to say, great, here's how we've seen other companies do it that have been in similar situations. And, you know, you might attack it this way, you might attack it that way. In our experience, you've got a much better chance, let's say, uh, of success if you do it one way versus the other, right? And also what you can do is is that you can contribute to the strategic discussion by by saying, listen, you know, if we go at it in this way, here's the following risks. But then it's taking it the next step. Yes, here are the risks, but here's how we address them. And here's how how we're going to reach potentially the business goals while doing it a slightly different way, but materially reducing the risk profile. And that's really the value add in, in the U.S. is getting from point A to point B, helping the business get from point A to point B and doing it while managing that risk, not eliminating risk typically, but understanding that, look, this is a fast moving startup. Right. And the old saying about moving fast and breaking things. Right. That's real. But, you know, but let's be thoughtful about it. Is there a way to break as few things as possible and still get to the same the same business goal? Yes. And then calling out those risks and saying, OK, well, how do we mitigate some of that downside if it exists or just at least the board know that we're living with this level of risk? 
Rarely are you going to be in a position, especially as a fast-moving startup, to eliminate all risk. But the question is, let's, let's come to a considered decision and be thoughtful about it, about what risks we're willing to take and are reasonable under the circumstances. Well, I mean, it's like Airbnb getting, you know, turned off in certain cities or Uber getting banned in certain cities. It's just, we could either go and get regulatory approval or we could just take the risk that we get banned in a few places. Right. And, and you know, I think what the lawyer can do in, in that sort of setting is help be another voice in the pro and con discussion to contribute to, to a considered outcome, which will also ultimately, the decision will be made by the ultimate business decision maker at the company. But that individual will, will have maybe a, a more well-rounded input to help make that final judgment call. But the reason that it, it's a little bit unique to the states kind of an obscure reason is because of the difference in the litigation system. And, and I can walk you through it quickly, you know. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. I mean, here's a, our clients who are US based uh, during COVID said no staff in our offices. And in fact, no staff are allowed to meet each other whilst the pandemic is in process, because we believe that we might get sued if we don't ban that human interaction face-to-face, -face, even meeting down the pub on a Saturday, even unless we ban all of that, we might lead ourselves to be being sued. Whereas in the UK, it was, if you, th you know, so that was the US, the subs of US firms just couldn't meet. The UK client said, the British government said, look, if you feel like you need to have a meeting, then have a meeting. And so most of our clients continue to come down to the farm face-to-face -face all the way through. And so that is just a, you know, in the UK, nobody's giving them advice to avoid litigation. But go on, tell what's, where does the background come from? Well, well, you're right. I mean, what, what you just said, everything you just said was 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 spot on, and actually is is great context for for what I was going to say. Which is, you're right that you don't get that focus on lit litigation in, in the UK because in the UK, for the most part, it's loser pays in litigation, which means you know you're kind of going double or nothing. If I was to to say, you know, you better do what I say or I'm going to get my lawyers on you and sue you. You know, you're thinking, well, you know, actually, I, I think you're probably not going to win or certainly not certain that you're going to win. And if you really want to risk having to pay my legal fees and your legal fees, I mean, sure, go right ahead. And that's the thing. Very relatively few people, relatively few companies compared to the U.S., right, take that kind of risk in the U.K. Like, you better be pretty certain that you're going to win or else you you are, as I said, kind of going double or nothing. And what that means is that, you know, writing the nasty letter as, as it was threatening litigation, which is a very common tactic in the United States, is not as prevalent in the UK because it's not as credible. Because just look at the statistics, people just don't sue each other as often here. And in an environment where that threat is not as imminent, that impacts behavior, right? Now, in the United States, if you and I have a business dispute and you win, you still pay all your own fees without reimbursement. And think about how that dynamic plays out, right? If I'm a bigger company and you're a smaller company, and we, for example, have an ambiguous contract, and six months after signing that, that contract, we have a business falling out, right? I can look at that ambiguity and, and, and threaten you for breach of contract, right? And then you think to yourself, well, I don't know if he's going to win or not. But I'm now I'm in, a, I'm in a bit of a spot, right? Because if, if I if I go and fight this out, even if I win, I'm out some large amount of money that's not going to be reimbursed for legal fees. Or 
I'm going to have to settle on his terms. And that's bad also. Right. And so what happens is that that threat of litigation becomes a business negotiation tool. It's not necessarily in that context always used as a as a search for justice, as it were, you know, it's used as, as leverage to drive business outcomes. And that's not a dynamic that you typically see in most other other countries. Now, what that leads to, and it's funny because that's when I have this discussion with companies, that that's usually the point where it's like, oh, I'm never going to the US. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, what? Well, this has been a very short interview. Daniel Glazer, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> You know, as I often say, you know, millions of companies are creating, what, trillions of dollars worth of GDP in the United States each year? So somebody is figuring this stuff out, right? Not everyone is scared off. But what it leads to, and this ties it back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, is it leads to a different type of, of advice, right? Because it's, okay, if, if door number one is you win in litigation, and, and you don't, but you don't get reimbursed for legal fees, and door number two is you end up settling on, you know, suboptimal terms, most companies pick door number three, which is that you take problem avoidance advice in the first place, right, to understand where the risks lie in your business dealings. Yes. Right. And so, you know, that, that contract that seemed entirely reasonable in the UK is going to lead you open to being potentially sued in the future. So you might change it, you might not, but at least let's be aware of where the risk is because the risks are different. There's a nuance here that I often bring up to companies as they think about the U.S., that there's the perception that everybody sues each other all, all the time in the U.S. And I, I often joke, it's, you know, it, it's not true. We don't sue you the minute you get off the plane in the U.S. We usually give you a few, a few hours to get comfortable and then all bets are off. No, I'm done. <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke. But what is true, though, is that the threat of a conflict is much more real in the U.S. than it is in, in other countries. Maybe we step back from the, all of the things that might go wrong and we say, look, the flip side of that is like, why should we be thinking about going to the U.S.? Because you're ac accessing the U.S. commercial market and you're accessing the U.S. private and public capital markets. Which are, I mean, certainly, certainly the, mar the marketplace typically is 10x versus the U.K. if you're in tech, but the capital markets must be much more than 10x. Yeah. The bottom line is this. If the U.S. commercial market and the U.S. capital markets are relevant and important to a, to a U.K. or other non-U.S. business, then it, it, you just figure out how to run your business differently given U.S. business realities, operational realities, because U.S. companies are all living with, with the same thing, right? You, in other words, you don't see U.S. companies leaving the U.S. because of the litigation environment. It's just, it comes as a surprise to companies coming in from outside of, 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 of the U.S. because it's just not the way you do business in other countries. So great to have an advisor who can, who can help you with that. Well, and, and, and this is, of course, you know, as, as an American in, in London, what I have to wrestle with is that the whole thing sounds self-serving. Self <laughs> that, uh, you know, it, it's the American lawyer talking about how the, you, there ends up being a greater need for U.S. legal, legal advice. Having been here in the, in the U.K. for a while, I'm uh, hyper self-aware of, of how that sounds. <laughs> and so the, the types of companies that this is for, as you say, they, uh, you, your example was an enterprise SaaS business with 50% of their sales coming from North America. As a, as a straw man, right? Like, like, and, and yeah, no, that's perfect because, you know, like whatever your growth rate is, you're, if, you, if you've already got early traction in the US and you haven't really tried, then, uh, you know, 
you are going to get significantly more of that growth from the US. And then you go and raise, seek to raise US VC. Would those firms typically then relocate, do you think? I'm going to push on this a bit because I think different people have a, a mean relocate in, in a different sense. And I want to kind of break that down on, on what it means to relocate to the U.S. You know, because there's a couple different ways that a company could decide to build its business, let's say, once it starts getting U.S. traction by selling it remotely. You know, it could open up a subsidiary, hire people in the United States and maybe send some people over from HQ. And then you end up, let's say, with, with you know, with a U.K. parent company and a U.S. subsidiary. I wouldn't necessarily call that relocate. I would call that expansion, right? It could be, though, that over time, the center of gravity of the business starts to shift, that the U.S. opportunity is so massive that it makes sense to put the CEO in in the U.S. Now, in the old days, I would say 10 years ago or so, I think a lot of the times you, you would see American VCs, when they did lead rounds into U.K. and European companies, they would require the, the CEO to move to the U.S. And we don't we don't see that generally anymore, unless unless it makes operational sense. Right. Right. I mean, un- unless the company is already at the point where, you know, 90 percent of the business is coming out of the U.S. and all the decisions need to be made out of the U.S. And well, maybe the CEO should, should be there. But what I mean is that I think 10 years or so ago, it would just be assumed that if a U.S. VC came in, whether it made operational sense or not, they might look for the CEO to move. And, and I think that we're we're beyond that now. Um, so there's relocation from an operational, an operational decision to be made, right? Which is where should management sit given the growth of the business and what its trajectory looks like. Then there's relocate in the sense of, of a corporate relocation, right? Which is that, again, 10 years ago, it would be very, very common that almost at any stage, if a US VC invested in a UK or European company, that, that they would require the company to so-called flip into a Delaware parent company or flip into a U.S. company, but it would typically be, be, be Delaware. And what I mean by that is, is that they would require a corporate reorganization so that the parent company of the business um, was no longer, let's say, a U.K. limited or a German GmbH or whatnot, that it was a Delaware company and then had the, 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 the U.K. company as a subsidiary. And the reason for that is that essentially the, the entire U.S. venture capital ecosystem is built on investing as a default into Delaware corporations. Because unlike the UK, where you can go to company's house, you can not find any information about Delaware registered company. There's a lot less information available about Delaware corporations than, than UK limited companies. But I wouldn't say that that's the reason that, okay. Delaware, yeah, that, that's not that's not driving it. it it's more that Decades ago, Delaware set itself apart as having a particularly strong corporate governance law and has has its own dedicated uh, corporate governance, corporate courts. Think about it this way. In an environment where investors are, are venture capital investors are taking significant risks, right? They're taking massive business risks on relatively early stage companies. They're, They're taking a risk on the team. They're taking a risk on product market fit. They want to then de-risk as much other things as Anything. possible, right? right. And, and so they so by investing into Delaware corporations, they know exactly what a Delaware corporation's rules are going to be. Okay. And then so future raises, transactions of any kind, it's all going to be easy. It's not complicated. Right. There will be an understanding and a, and a predictability of, of how things will play out being uh, an investor in a, in a Delaware ah, corporation. Okay. And so the the earlier stage that you are 
as a non-US company. What we see, and I think this has been true for, for some time, is that the earlier stage you are, the less likely it is that a US-based investor will be willing to deal with the friction, as it were, of investing in a non-Delaware corporate structure, right? So it's, I would say, fairly common, Not certainly not every time, but it's relatively common at the seed stage, if a US VC is, in, is taking a lead role, US-based VC, is taking a lead role into a UK or other European business, that there will be some discussion as to whether or not the company will flip into a Delaware parent company. But at the later stage, let's say it's Series B or later, virtually never, right? Because at that point, the company has been around a lot, a lot longer. The, the, the investors are willing to maybe take a little bit more time to, I hesitate to use the word deal with it, but, you know, but address the slightly added complexity of coming into something other than a Delaware corporation. Yeah. Okay. Because it, that, the, the risk of that is less for them than the business impact of re-registering the company and all of the, you know, all of the other things that you'd then need to put in place to make sure it all worked, you know, going to your bank to say, we've changed all of this, you know, you just don't need to have that conversation if you don't need to have that conversation. I think it's a couple things, right? The longer that the company goes along, the later stage of the company is, the more expensive and disruptive it is to, to flip the corporate structure like, like that, right? Also, the later stage the company gets, frankly, the more leverage it typically has. There's only so many great series B and later opportunities to, to go around, so it's competitive pressure. Competitive pressure. Right. Okay. So here I am. I'm, uh, I want to go and launch into the UK, set up a US legal entity in Delaware. Do I have to have a legal entity in the US to trade in the US? Not typically to sell in, into the US. So let, let's say we'll, we'll go back to the straw man of, let's say you're in your B2B SaaS business selling into the US. That generally speaking, if you're just selling in remotely into U.S. companies, you don't need to have a U.S. company do that. You can just sell out of your U.K. Lim limited company. I'll, I'll give a couple caveats to that. Charge them in dollars, and do I then have to pay state taxes? Um, you need to take a look at sales tax. And each state has its own rules with respect to sales tax, both in terms of what is subject to sales tax and also what the threshold is of when you have to start uh, collecting and, and paying sales tax. So, so we, we usually tell companies if they're selling in remotely to the U.S., it's good to at least have an initial chat with a U.S. tax accountant just to understand at what point they may end up pushing the envelope in, in terms of when they have to get a little more serious about, about paying attention to U.S. tax. But from a legal standpoint, you can sell out of a UK company into the US and, and you can do that under either English law or the laws of the US state of the company that, that you're selling to. I guess a couple caveats, and this gets a little bit in, in, in the weeds, so I'm gonna be really quick about this. If you're selling into some US federal government entities, you may need a US company. And um, also if, if you're at some point, if you're selling a lot into the United States and revenue is really getting massive, worth having a chat with a tax advisor to see if there's any tax efficiencies with running some of that revenue through a US entity. Okay. And then you need one if you're going to employ people. Yeah, that's what we usually remark is the, is the bright red line of when you want to create a US company. And, and just, to, just to clarify, when I talk about a US company in this context, I would mean typically a su subsidiary. What I usually tell companies as a rule of thumb is that the decision to create a U.S. subsidiary is an operational and commercial decision, right? Like you're, you're, you're hiring people in the U.S. or you're sending people over from HQ. You can do that through a U.S. subsidiary. The decision to create a U.S. parent company is typically an investor-driven decision, yeah. right? which is usually the, the reason that you would flip into a Delaware company is because you're, you're getting that request from a U.S. investor who's, who's looking to invest in you. 
right? But in the context of, of employment, that's the that's the, the the bright red line typically of where it makes sense to set up a company that that you 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 don't want to hire U.S. employees typically through a U.K. company for three reasons: quickly liability. You don't want to have U.S. liability going up to the deep pockets of the, of the parent company in, in in the U.K. for tax reasons. You, you you don't want the argument that there's a taxable branch of the U.K. company operating in the U.S. potentially putting the, the U.K. company within the U.S. tax net. And then finally, from an employment law standpoint, you could potentially end up with ambiguity between U.S. employment rules governing employees and U.K. employment rules governing U.K. employers. Okay, fab. And do you have a sense on if I'm in the U.K. now and I was thinking of going to the U.S., do you do you have your top three places to go and put your business? Is that or maybe it's where people are going at the moment and has that changed over time? So. Great question. One of the things that we've done over, over over time, based on the conversations that we have with companies about going to the U.S., and, and we end up we set up 150 to 200 subsidiaries a year or so for for UK European companies. So we have these discussions a lot. Is that we we've identified eight primary considerations for companies coming out of the UK or Europe in terms of where operationally to set up in the U.S. Okay. Now, um, and I'm, I'll, I'll run through those quickly. The CEO's ability to take his family there on holiday, is that one of them? And it couldn't hurt. I, that, that would be, <laughs> that would be a, I would call it a second tier. Uh, okay, fine. fine. Why, are the, why are those eight in the top tier then? Yeah. So in no particular order, um, you know, what sort of talent are you looking to hire, right? And is it concentrated in any one particular place in the United States? What is the cost of operating a business in the particular area, right? The larger cities might cost a bit more than, than some of the smaller cities in, in the U.S. Where are your potential next stage VCs? And is, it, is there a benefit to, to being, near, being near them and, and building those, those relationships? Where are your current or potential future customers and users? And is it helpful to be, to be close to them? Are they clustered in any one particular place? How are you going to be managing the team across borders? And here's what I mean by that. If you're only hiring locally and you only and you and you decide to set up in on the West Coast, right? Well, you've now got an eight-hour time difference and an 11-hour flight, and no one who's got the DNA of the business on the ground there. And that creates a risk of the of culturally the UK and the US business is starting to diverge. Whereas, you know, if you're only hiring locally, the East Coast, you know, especially somewhere like like New York, you end up with only a five hour time difference and a, you know sort of a six and a half seven seven hour flight, which is a, which is easier to manage. If you are sending people across from HQ, people have got the the, the DNA of the business, that gives you more flexibility uh, in in terms of uh, in terms of where to where to go in the U.S. So the last few, um, what sort of government resources are are available? Virtually all states and larger cities in the U.S have economic development organizations that are providing incentives to companies to set up in, the, in those areas. And they really love tech companies setting up there. So it's worth finding out what sort of incentives that they can offer. Are you going to have to travel extensively in the U.S.? And if so, do you want to be near a travel hub? There's a reason why so many U.S. corporate headquarters for larger U.S. corporates are in the Chicago suburbs because from Chicago's O'Hare Airport, you can get pretty much anywhere in the United States in roughly three hours or, or less. Right. And then finally, from an M&A standpoint or an exit standpoint, if you think that your likely exit is to be acquired by one or two or particular U.S. companies, does it make sense to set up near them, build those relationships early, 
build your, your product offering in, in a way that's particularly attractive to, to what, what those companies are doing, that could make your ultimate exit that much easier, right? So the, the, those are the most common eight, but we, we, we usually shy away from telling companies, you really need to go to place X in the United States because usually when you kind of run down that list of, of factors or considerations that I just mentioned, you end up coming up with a top three, top five that are clear, but it's better to, to sort of come to that from proper consideration as opposed to starting right off the bat with, with some names. You don't want them to blame you because they end up in the wrong city. <laughs> you just want to take them through that, take them through that uh, journey of discovery on their own. Um, I guess one of the things that uh, might be different, uh, and particularly in startups where they're incentivizing their employees with equity or options, yeah. is that hard to do, easy to do, easier to do, get complicated because we're in multiple jurisdictions? Um, no, I mean, it's, it, it's a pretty well-traveled path. At this point, if you're a UK lim- limited company, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of at a high level explain how that works. Although maybe I should just point out, I think you sort of alluded to this, US employees on average in the tech sector tend to be very focused on employee equity, on options, that there have been plenty of companies in the US that have had successful exits where most people in the company most employees in the company end up doing very, very well because of options. This is a, a key consideration for many U.S.-based tech employees in a way that it's it's often not as much of a focus in the U.K. and Europe, although that's changing. That is changing. If you are looking to provide equity to U.S. Em- employees, typically what you would do is that you would, assuming you have a, a, an EMI plan in the, the U.K., you would create a non-EMI sub subplan. And, and often you, you, you would look to get the options qualified for, for, for tax advantage treatment in, in the U.S., typically what would be called incentive stock options or, or ISOs in the United States. Probably the most important thing is that you need to get what's called a 409A valuation. 409A refers to, to the relevant provision of the, the U.S. tax code. Right? And everyone just refers to it as, as a 409, 409A valuation. And that's going to be tied to the fair market value of your company and that fair market value value valuation will allow you to set the price appropriately for the options in a way that you can ensure tax advantage treatment in the U.S. and and avoid any future penalties. This is something that later stage investors in the U.S. pay attention to, that this has been done correctly, that acquirers pay pay attention to and that make sure it's been done done correctly. And that when, if you look to list in the U.S., will will certainly be a, a, a core focus of due diligence, that this is this is an area that when startups get wrong in, in the U.S., it has long-term ramifications. So, you know, it looks a little bit different than the way you do it in the U.K., but it's done all the time in the U.S. You just need to understand what the right steps are. What role do you play then in helping clients raise money or, or even M&A more broadly, but, you know, raising money? Are you, you're not a VC. No. So I come to you and say, right, help me to raise money. What? What are you going to help me with? We're not a corporate finance advisor, right? But I would say that, that it's certainly in, in the nature of certainly Silicon Valley law firms or Silicon Valley headquartered law firms in the U.S. to, to play a little bit of the, the community connector role because we're, we're all incentivized. Because in the U.S., it is very common for a, a law firm that's working in the tech space to work on the Series A, the Series B financing, and then to eventually take the company public. Same, 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 same law firm, and that's not always the case 
in other parts of the world, but in the U.S., that's a bit of a more common model. And when you think of it that way, the law firm and, and frankly, the other professional firms as well, whether it's the tax accountant, whether it's the bank, um, you know, whether it's your HR and payroll provider, a lot of those outside advisors have that sort of same scaling approach. And in that context, everyone's interests are aligned, which is how can we be as helpful to the company as possible? Because we're all, we all want to help them build the biggest, most successful business possible. And when, and when, when the company has an IPO or, or M&A event, right, and, and management and the employees do well, everybody does well, right? And, and it's one of the things that helps American tech companies move quickly is that they have this whole team around them that is willing to try to be helpful in any way possible. Yep. So it's, it's more a, okay, you're this type of firm. We can definitely help you with the things that are in our purview to help you with. And then here's some connections out to people that we've worked with in the past who would probably be open to yeah. funding you. Yeah. Given what we've seen those investors invest in over, over, over time and what they've expressed are their interests and given what the company is, is doing, right, that they maybe should be, should be talking to, to. That's what I mean about the, 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 the community connector role. Right? And that might be to VCs or it might be to corporate finance, depending on whether it's raising money or M&A work or. Right. But it's all informal, right? As I said, we're not corporate finance advisors, but it's sort of all consistent with the sort of paying it forward approach that you'd like to see in any tech ecosystem, right? But I think historically, especially you would see in the in the Silicon Valley or US tech ecosystems. Okay. What what else about scaling from Europe to North America have I not asked you about that I should have done? Uh, when's the right time to go? Oh, okay. It's a good question. When's the right time to go? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> um, so we usually say to, to companies that you sort of want to go early or or go late. Here's what I, what I mean by that, is that there's some companies that decide to go early. In other words, they start the business and very soon they come to the conclusion that actually the U.S. is the market that they need to win. And it's so obvious to them that the U.S. is the right market for the business, that they don't want to build the product offering anywhere else but the American market. They want to build it for the American market. And to really do that well, they need to be on the ground in the U.S. and they want to be raising from U.S. investors from day one. Yeah. So you'll see, let's say, maybe management move to the U.S. They might keep some of the back office functions like you know, engineering or you know, dev or, or otherwise you know, back in, in Europe. But there will be sort of a front end U.S. business raised from U.S. investors and scale from there. Right. That's what I mean by, by go early. Go late is... Typically, the company will, you know, raise, a, let's say, start in the UK, raise a seed round in, in the UK, maybe raise an A round in, in the, the UK. And somewhere along the lines, it's often between seed and series A that they start to get traction in the US, right? They start to sell in remotely in the US. And they end up getting pulled into the US by customer traction or user growth. And maybe they'll start by selling in remotely. And then maybe after that, they'll, they'll hire a part-time contractor or two or a sale agent or two, um, which you don't need a full structure for. They're not employees, right? But they'll bring in contractors to help fly the flag for the business and try to prove out whether or not there really is product market fit, right? And then finally, you know, if it's, if it's so clear that, that it's the right market for them, then they'll put people on the ground and look to Americanize what had previously been let's say a UK or European product offering. 
In other words, start in the UK, get product market fit on this side of the Atlantic, and then Americanize it, but hopefully by as a result of being pulled into the US, right? As opposed to saying, right, the US is the big market. I don't have any proof this is going to work, but I'm going to start spending money on it and moving people there, and we're going to we're going to make it work. That's tough, right? Because I'll tell you that I can tell you this from personal experience: the UK and the US markets are in many ways very very different, right? And and just because something works in the US doesn't mean it's going to work in the UK and vice versa. And and certainly as a as a startup, trying to build a business simultaneously on both sides of the Atlantic and not having product market fit in either, you'll run out of money. And sanity very quickly. Years ago, when I first started working with UK companies around the time of the, the Tech City launch around 2010, 2011, I remember back then I, I would hear the comment that the, the US is the graveyard of British startups, which I don't hear anymore, fortunately, because it's not. But I think in retrospect, I understand why that comment w- was made, is that, that I, I think a lot of times historically companies have, got, have gotten the timing wrong. Not as much anymore because I think there's a lot more information out there now and a lot more experience of, of, uh, of companies that have gotten it right and gotten it gotten wrong. It's that going too early that can put a company in a position where it ends up spending a lot of money because the U.S. is a more expensive market, right? salaries are higher, without necessarily proof that it's the right market for the company. Okay. Daniel, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Two things. No- number one is it goes back to what I literally ju- just said is the differences between the UK and the US markets. Uh, you know, as someone who is involved in building a business, an American business in the UK, it wasn't until I moved here and really spent even more, more time here that I really started to un- understand, you know, how things are done differently. And, and I think the, um, the semi-similar common language, <laughs> um, I think papers over a fair n- number of differences uh, and it's fascinating. When you go back to the US, what is there a thing that you say, let me just give you one example of how different it is that people, that's your sort of go-to story or anecdote. Have you got one? Yeah. No matter what I have to say, I qualify it as being a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, very good. When I was at Pier 1, we had a sort of uh, a check sheet, uh, sort of a, for uh, what the Brits will say, for this is for the American executive team, what the Brits will say and what they really mean. And on there at the end is it says that uh, you'll do 55 minutes of a 60-minute conference call. And the, the Brit will say at the end, there's just one more thing, which he means, and this is the purpose for our entire call. The, re- the other 55 minutes was just preamble. When I go back to the US, I, I have to make sure not to get offended if somebody tells me that something I've done is quite good. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Um, and uh, are there any books on the topic or books that you've, as you've been working through your professional career that you, that you think people should pick up? Yeah. And, and I guess specifically the, the one that we often recommend to companies or startups that are looking to raise money or, or have raised money or going to do it again is uh, Venture Deals uh, by Brad Feld. And uh, I think that that's been around for, for some, some, some time now. It's really sort of the classic in the industry. But I think the full title is Venture Deals, How to Be Smarter Than Your Investor and Your Lawyer. But it's great. I mean, it, it's written for entrepreneurs on how to understand all the in, ins and outs of, of a venture financing transaction. And it's, it's, it's hugely instructive. And if, and if you're going to be run, run, running a business, you know, it, it's good to get on top of that stuff as, as much as possible. 
Fabulous. Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks very much indeed for coming on. You got it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.